History's not like something like math. It's something that can have potentially many right answers and many different perspectives and many different ways to look at things. And what that means is sometimes when you're taking a tour through the past, the guide that you have at the time is key. And you can take the same tour multiple times, but if you have a different guide, they'll point out different things, emphasize different things. How often have you read two different books on the same historical event and gotten different perspectives? The perspective of the storyteller matters. Whether you like history or not, if you care about things like bravery and wisdom and passion and larger-than-life characters and some of the most emotionally intense moments in the human experience, you've come to the right place and, and, and a chance to get a perspective from a different kind of historical tour guide. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, a writer, a martial artist, a philosopher, and it provides a very different sort of tour guide through the past than you normally encounter. In this tour, he'll be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Thanks to Audible Channels for supporting History on Fire. Check out their original series, Presidents Are People Too, at audible.com forward slash presidents. Also a big thank you to my regular sponsor, Datsusara and Onnit. If you are in the market for great supplements, workout gear and other goodies, please go to www.onnit.com forward slash history where you'll receive an automatic discount and if you need any kind of bags computer bag travel bags backpacks check out the amazingly hemp made gear found at dsgear.com where you can use the code daniele at checkout for a discount if you didn't catch any of the above websites the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com at the end of the episode more on how to support the show and make sure it stays viable. Plus, I'll mention a few things regarding future plans for upcoming episodes. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. When we left off last time, Theodore Roosevelt seemed to be done with politics. He had stepped down from office after almost two full terms as president, and had given his blessing to his friend William Taft as the next president. At that point he had left the country, spent almost a year hunting in a safari in Africa. All signs pointed to the fact that he was done with public life, and that his political battles were a thing of the past. But for a guy like Roosevelt, Battles were never a thing of the past. That's what he lived for. And events conspired to bring him back in the thick of it all. The main issue was that Taft's 
tenure as president was considerably more problematic than Roosevelt had anticipated. During his time, Roosevelt had managed to keep the conservative and progressive wings of the Republican Party united. Taft, on the other hand, began siding with the conservative side and ignored the progressives. Taft was considerably more pro-business than Roosevelt had been. He, he had picked the Secretary of Interior, who was in bed with the timber and mining industry, and both of these industries had their eyes on the national forest that Roosevelt had wanted to protect, and that instead Taft was ready to sell to the highest bidder. On top of it all, Taft got rid of some of the people that Roosevelt had chosen for various roles in government. And ultimately, he just did not stick to the principle that he had promised Roosevelt he would uphold. So, not surprisingly, Roosevelt felt betrayed. And in case it had not been clear before, Roosevelt was now painfully reminded that his worst mistake had been to given up the presidency when he could have kept it for longer. He still remembered, you know, years after the fact, he still remembered the name of every single worker in the White House. He was made for that. That was his life. And he seen someone else do a horrible job at a task that he believed was meant for him was infuriating to him. Making things even worse, in 1910, Democrats won congressional elections, which made many other people within the Republican Party begin to question Taft's leadership. There were quite a few people, particularly the progressives, who felt that Taft needed to be replaced at the next presidential election in 1912. A part of Roosevelt didn't want to challenge Taft. He actually really liked him. They had been really good friends. But he was mad with the political betrayal, and he saw him as weak. In uh, Roosevelt's own words, he said, I'm really sorry for Taft. I'm sure he means well. But he means well feebly, and he doesn't know how. He's utterly unfit for leadership, and this is a time when we need leadership. So he was going back and forth regarding what to do. He had not really envisioned a future in which he would challenge his own uh, friend for the presidency, and yet here he was. One event took place at one point. There was one day um, Roosevelt's wife, Edith, was uh, out on a horse. They often went horseback riding. And on this one day when Edith was riding, a car scared her horse, and Edith was thrown and remained uh, unconscious for two days. Eventually she pulled through, but she was obviously weakened for quite a while after this accident. Now, right around this time, Roosevelt began warming up to the idea of challenging Taft for the nomination. His wife Edith was far from happy about it, but she was too weak from the accident to put up too much of a protest against it. And Roosevelt, in classic Roosevelt fashion, he did not really stop to think how the campaign would affect her. He was, that's one of the uglier side of Roosevelt personality, that he often just went ahead and did things, regardless of uh, 
uh, how his choices would affect those closest to him. And this is clearly one of those cases. By now, Roosevelt was beginning to speak out publicly against uh, his former friend Taft. Uh, he gave a speech clearly in opposition to Taft, in which he emphasized his own support for labor, the need to check corporate interest, and even suggested a very radical notion, which is still radical to this day. He proposed a ban on corporate money in politics, not a partial ban, not a limitation, a complete ban on any kind of corporate money in politics, which is still the big unresolved issue in American politics to this day. I'm going to read you a quote from Roosevelt's own words, and he was almost freaky out this quote from over a hundred years ago is still applicable to this day. Here it goes. Political parties exist to secure responsible government and to execute the will of the people. From these great tasks, both of the old parties have turned aside. Instead of instruments to promote the general welfare, they have become the tools of corrupt interests which use them impartially to serve their selfish purposes. Behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people. To destroy this invisible government, to dissolve the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics, is the first task of the statemanship of the day. Now, this is quite a powerful quote. This whole thing, really, but the very end when he said to destroy this invisible government, to dissolve the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics, there, right there, this is still the key problem in American politics today. For that matter, not even just in American politics, in really most of the world, the same dynamics are at play. What exactly is the problem? Well, the problem is obvious. You need money in order to run for office. And by money, we don't mean just some old lady in Nebraska who like what you have to say and send 20 bucks to your campaign. I mean, that's sweet and all, but that's not the big money. In order to run for office, the reality is you need some serious corporate money. And the way it works is that corporations don't want to buy you outright. They don't need to control everything you do as a politician. So as a politician, you may not even feel like you're selling out. Because in most other matters, they're not interested in controlling how you're going to vote or what your policy is going to be. Except that when it comes to policies that will affect them, well, then they want to be able to pick up the phone, call you, and ask you to return the favor. I picture this relationship between corporations and politicians something along the, the beginning of The Godfather. You know how in the Godfather movie, at the, at the very beginning, there's that scene with Marlon Brando that closes with Marlon Brando saying, Someday, and that day may never come, I will call upon you to do a service for me. But until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Man, pulling off an Italian accent is so difficult for me. I can't quite do that. 
you know, that's the reality. They don't want to call you every day and tell you what to do. It's just about someday, and that day may never come, well, except it always does, because at some point they want a return for their investment. That's when they are going to call you to do a service for me, as the godfathers say. And that's when, as a politician, you owe one favor to one corporation, one favor to another, one favor to another. And before you know it, even if you didn't think you are selling out, turns out you actually are. Now, this is something that the overwhelming majority of Americans, whether they are liberals, conservatives, or anywhere in between, agree on this point. Most people agree that the system is corrupt. There's more unity on this particular issue than probably about on any other on the political landscape. And yet, nothing gets done. Why? Well, because the only people with the power to change the existing system are the very people who are part of the corrupt existing system. From politicians, along with the judges they have appointed. And, you know, we're asking the perpetrators to be the ones who pass laws to stop themselves. That's ridiculous, of course. That's not going to happen. Which is why, despite widespread consensus that this is a real issue, nothing ever changes on this stuff. And if you look at the whole trajectory of U.S. political history, and again, I'm using U.S. because this is what we're talking about now, but you can really apply to pretty much most other countries. All of that political history is affected by this issue. If you look at events anywhere from the coup in Guatemala in the 1950s, really just for doing the interest of United Fruit Company, to President Eisenhower warnings about the growth of the military-industrial complex and the threat that this represented to American democracies. There are 10,000 issues that keep popping up that are all that all have the roots in the same issue, which is the influence of corporate money in politics. And this is not a democratic or republican problem. They are all equally guilty. You don't get to play the game at a high level unless you are part of this system. Well, except Roosevelt refused to play this game, which is why the bosses in his own party hated him, which is why we mentioned in, in the second episode in this series uh, when a businessman who had contributed to his campaign realized that Roosevelt wasn't there to play ball the way all other politicians did, he had stated, we bought the son of a bitch, and then he didn't stay bought. Roosevelt was against all of them. He had thought that Taft was with him on this. He had believed that Taft was right along with him. Well, turns out he wasn't. Taft was just another cog in the machine of corruption. As the election of 1912 was coming close, Roosevelt's wife, Edith, told him that she didn't believe that the Republican Party would ever give him the nomination. And yet Roosevelt was really tempted to run anyway. So after going back and forth on his decision a few times, after hinting that maybe he would, and then thinking back about it. Eventually, one day, he came out and said, I quote, My hat is in the ring, the fight is on, and I'm stripped to the buff. That's classic Roosevelt 
larger than life kind of declarations very over the top and yet the point was clear he was going to run in 1912 he was going to challenge taft these immediately ended their friendship um, taft denounced roosevelt as uh, um, he said that roosevelt had been too free with the constitution which he, did, he which he was there's no argument there roosevelt had been playing uh, fast and loose with some constitutional ideas Taft also said, I quote, that Roosevelt was the most dangerous man we have had in this country since its origin. Oh, that's quite a claim. I mean, lots of human beings have inhabited the United States to make the title for the most dangerous man we have had in this country since its origin. That's saying something. My guess is that if Roosevelt was indeed the most dangerous man, it's because he was the one political figure who, more than any other, had an actual legitimate shot at tackling the issue of corruption in politics. Regardless of the specific motivation, Taft was really broken up about Roosevelt's challenge. Many people walked in on him in various occasions and saw him crying, and he was crying over the end of his friendship with Roosevelt. He felt, and yet, what could he expect? He had completely betrayed Roosevelt's political legacy. He had expected basically to just take it meekly and be happy that he had been president and let Taft run business now however he wanted. That wasn't going to happen, and it's obvious. So, But despite this, you know, the personal and the political were intertwined. Taft said that Roosevelt had been his best friend by far, and yet this election was going to drive them dramatically apart. Not just the two of them. This was a very divisive election within the Republican Party. Former friends, you know, friends, not just Taft and Roosevelt, other people broke up their friendship over this. Even husbands and wives would often end up in arguing against each other. Uh, for example, Roosevelt's daughter Alice, she was insanely mad over the fact that her husband Nick supported Taft. She wanted to divorce, and she had stated... He hates me, and I him. Alice at this juncture went to visit her father and ended up becoming one of uh, his main political advisors. In some way we can see this as a move to win his love by helping him politically at a time when his own wife was less than happy about the campaign. It's true that Edith was not happy with Roosevelt running in 1912, but at the same time, she was also kind of proud of him. She stated that she was proud that he was, I quote, making an appeal fight for what he believes in. Alice even went as far as flirting with the media boss, William Randolph Hearst, in order to find out about his plans for the, an anti-Theodore Roosevelt campaign that Hearst was planning to launch. Now, during the course of the campaign, Taft openly accused Roosevelt of inciting class warfare. Roosevelt countered by saying that Taft had no loyalty and was a slave to business interests. Taft said that he was terrible that Roosevelt would uh, try to get a third term in office. But Roosevelt defended himself by saying that as long as the terms are not consecutive, it was perfectly fine to do so. Because remember, by the way, back then there were no laws 
against uh, how many terms you could run as president. It had been kind of customary to limit yourself to two, but there really was no law in place, uh, which is why later another Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, would end up winning four consecutive elections. Now, Roosevelt, our Roosevelt, the Roosevelt of our story, Theodore Roosevelt, was very loved by voters. They are the only people who really loved him. You know, politicians didn't, of no political persuasion, but voters did. So when it came down to it, in the Republican primaries, Roosevelt ended up winning twice as many delegates as Taft did. He trashed him in the primaries. So based on what we know, then the conclusion is obvious, right? Roosevelt won the Republican nomination, correct? Well, not really, because back then only a minority of delegates were tied to the voters' will. Many delegates were not bound to vote according to what the voters had decided. They really owed no loyalty to the primary process itself. They would vote however they wanted. And in this case, the bosses of the Republican Party, they were all on Taft's side. So even though Roosevelt was clearly dominating with voters, he still did not have enough delegates to win the nomination. The party bosses told their guys to vote for Taft, and so at the Republican convention, Taft got the nod to be their candidate in 1912. Needless to say, the Republican Party was as divided as it ever was. Um, fights broke out on the floor of the convention between Roosevelt and Taft supporters. It was, it was a really ugly scene. And Roosevelt did not take it well. He was mad with what he felt was straight-up theft of his nomination. His idea was like, why are we even having primaries if it doesn't matter what voters choose, if it's something that you guys get to decide in a back room somewhere where the bosses of the party pick the candidate. Why do we even have this? And in one case, he came out and said, I quote, the Republican Party must stand for the rights of humanity or else it must stand for special privilege. But based on what they had done, in Roosevelt's mind, it was pretty clear on which side the Republican Party fell. Uh, forget the rights of humanity, at this point it was all about special privilege. And historically speaking, this is where the Republican Party flips ideologically. Um, this is the time Roosevelt realized that by now, the mainstream wing of the Republican Party had become the party of big business. Some of the Republican voters, actually most of the Republican voters, were not on board with this idea. Most of them were in favor of Roosevelt's progressive agenda. And yet, the bosses of the party had shut the door to this idea. So Roosevelt felt there was no room for him inside the Republican Party anymore. So does that mean he accepts defeat and walk away? We're talking about Theodore Roosevelt here, so the answer is no. What he did instead was to create a new party, what he referred to as the Progressive Party. And the Progressive Party, however, was quickly nicknamed the Bull Moose Party, 
because when journalists asked Roosevelt if he was ready for, you know, how was he felt, was he ready for this long election campaign, Roosevelt has replied that he was as strong as a bull moose. So that's what they were referred to usually, the bull moose party, which is the quintessential Theodore Roosevelt type of name, right? His belief was that both parties, Republicans and Democrats, were corrupt and inefficient. And he stated that a third party was badly needed. So in this sense, his challenge to the two-party system feels extremely modern. Um, This is a very rare case in U.S. politics when you have a true three-way race with the third-party candidate being an extremely strong one. This is probably the closest moment in modern U.S. history where the United States could have ended up with more than two parties. At the Progressive Convention, Roosevelt gave a speech in which he stated, We fight in honorable fashion for the good of mankind, fearless of the future, unheeding of our individual fate, with unflinching hearts and undimmed eyes. We stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. Many of his friends, though, were not on board. Even senator and longtime Roosevelt supporter like Henry Cabot Lodge was too tied to Taft, so he could not support his friend Roosevelt. Even Roosevelt's relative, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the future president, along with Roosevelt's niece, Eleanor, they wanted to support him, but they couldn't. Due to, uh, due to the fact that they were part of the Democratic Party. So they would end up supporting whichever candidate the Democratic Party was going to push forward. By now, Roosevelt endorsed more radical positions than he had ever done before. He fully supported the women's right to vote, which was still a few years away. He supported the right to create labor unions. He was in favor of limiting campaign spending. He was, as usual, very hardcore about protecting natural resources. He wanted to pass laws to limit the workday to eight hours a day and no more than that. He wanted to pass laws to eliminate child labor. He wanted to provide federal insurance for the elderly, uh, create some minimum wage, and also provide insurance for unemployment and for those too sick to work. All of these reforms, most of them were going to happen eventually, but most of them were decades away of Roosevelt's own time. Uh, Quite a few of them would be enacted by Theodore's relative, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, later on. He also wanted judges to be recalled by voters if they blocked popular legislations. His idea was that if these things were not done through a social democratic approach, what he called progressivism, then they were going to happen in a much more radical fashion. Then they were going to open the door to communists in the United States. Roosevelt's idea was that the abuses of corporate bosses and Wall Street would lead to a violent revolution. So the way he saw it is his own efforts at reform, yes, they were about reform, 
but they were also as much about trying to prevent people much more radical than himself from having easy political capital that they could turn into a revolution. In some way we can think of him, if we, if you are familiar with Roman history, and if you are not, check out Dan Carlin episodes about the fall of the Roman Republic, are an absolute masterpiece in, uh, in hardcore history. When Dan Carlin speaks about the political career of the Gracchi brothers, in some sense there are similarities with what Roosevelt was doing. Much like the Gracchi brothers had done, Roosevelt was trying to reform a system in order to keep things going, rather than have this system head toward disaster, which could open the door to violent revolutions, to communism, to simply the collapse of that system. So he saw his reforms as a way to avoid this. The idea for him was that only a progressive approach could save capitalism from itself. Which, in some way, this raises the question of whether Roosevelt was a socialist by now. He had, after all, become more progressive as time went by, and he spoke against, I quote, the damage done to our country by the mere existence of those swollen and monstrous fortunes. In another instance, he described himself as a radical who believed that, I quote, unless the majority of our people share to a certain extent in the prosperity, then the success and the prosperity amount to very little. During the 1912 election, there actually was a true socialist candidate running. In fact, 1912 was interesting because you really had four candidates with strong popular following, all running against each other. You normally have two, hardly ever you have a third one. You basically never have four, definitely not in the 1900s, that's not a common thing. And this fourth one, Eugene Debs, was not... He ended up actually winning 6% of the vote, which of course is very far from being able to win, but it's an amazingly high percentage for a fourth-party candidate in the US, and for one who was a radical socialist. In any case, there was a friend of Eugene Debs who, speaking of Roosevelt, he said, I sat within 20 feet of Roosevelt, and there were times when I could have shut my eyes and readily believed that I was listening to a socialist soap boxer. So even some socialists began feeling that Roosevelt was flirting with socialist ideas. And when asked about it, Roosevelt himself responded in this way, I'm friendly to the kind of socialism of which you speak, he said to his interviewer. And then he continued, I am utterly against the kind of socialism of Debs. But as you say, I'm not to be frightened in the least by the word socialism or of ideas because they are called socialistic. Right here, Roosevelt puts his finger on an important issue. This is exactly the problem that I tend to have with so much of, so many political discussions that roll around these terms without even having a clear understanding of what these terms mean. Take the word socialism. Socialism is a very vague word. 
It's not as vague as liberal or conservative, but pretty close to it. There really is no such thing as one type of socialism. There are so many different shades of meaning attached to it. So many different courses of action associated with supposed socialist policies. That the word should be dropped from the dictionary for being hopelessly vague, to the point of having lost its use, since people may use the word socialist to refer to radically different political ideologies. I mean, Roosevelt just said it in the above quote. He said he's okay with some types of socialism, but he's against the Debs socialism. Meaning there's more than one type. Not the word is... Again, one, the same word can be used to describe very different policies. That's not a useful word anymore. Here is a prime example, uh, the one we were just seeing with Roosevelt's, in Roosevelt's own telling, which is why I find it frustrating to hear people use this label as if it actually had a single, unambiguous meaning. It doesn't. You know, we probably should stop talking of liberals, conservatives, socialists, and, and all those other terms. We should look at issue on a case-by-case basis rather than trying to make them fit into these categories that don't always, they are not as neatly defined as the people using them think they are. For example, in some ways he said things that were very anti-socialist. At one point Roosevelt has suggested the firing squad for radical union leaders. And yet at the same time it was undeniable that some of his policies were textbook democratic socialism. Roosevelt was clearly opposed to Marxism and communist doctrines. At the same time, he was completely fine with the more mellow progressive reforms, which are basically a form of democratic socialism. You know, yes, he wasn't a communist. Yes, he was not in favor of the kind of radical type of socialism advocated by Eugene Debs. But his own policies were fairly close to the kind of democratic socialism that is prevalent today in northern European countries trying to balance capitalism and socialism. If not an exact match, then at least progressivism and democratic socialism were close cousins. It was a moderate kind of socialism, equally opposed to a full-blown welfare state, which was still kind of a foreign concept in Roosevelt times, but was even more opposed to the dark conniving of politics and corporations. So Roosevelt advocated government regulation to stop this stuff. He wanted strict government control of business. And I'll let Roosevelt speak for himself on this. This is what he said. There was once a time in history when the limitation of governmental power meant increasing liberty for the people. In the present day, the limitation of governmental power, of governmental action, means the enslavement of the people by the great corporations, who can only be held in check through the extension of governmental power. Well, there's a bit of a trick in this statement. I mean, on some level he's right. The problem is that in Roosevelt's opinion, government, the way he refers to government is government in its own hands if Roosevelt was president, if, if he himself was in charge, then the kind of government he's talking about probably would exist. 
The problem, of course, with his statement is that while he's correct in saying that corporate power represents a threat to the average citizen, that threat cannot be limited by government in a system in which government is bought and paid for by corporations. Because then, of course, you end up with government and corporations working hand in hand. But, of course, Roosevelt was running his idea of government was a government that would have him in charge and so would not be subject to that kind of corruption. Case in point, there had been, in 1911, a very famous story took place, an ugly, sad story. There was a textile factory in New York and a fire had broke out in this textile factory, which ended up killing over 146 workers, mostly young Jewish and Italian women. And all of these workers had died because the owners had locked the exits and some of the stairs to prevent workers from sneaking out for breaks without locking out. He had only left, they had only left one way out of the building, which had easily jammed at the beginning of the fire, trapping all the workers inside. Now, all of this was perfectly legal because there were no laws regulating business back then. And of course, it was also the perfect setup to cause a disaster leading to the death of, to the deaths of 146 people in, in a case when the fire did break out. So in this instance, when the fire broke out, there was no way for the people to get out. You know, a few made it out through the elevator before the flames made it impossible for the elevator to work. And so the result is that many of them ended up jumping from the windows as an alternative to burning to death. And this complete lack of regulation in the workplace drove progressives like Roosevelt crazy. They felt that this is exactly what happens when you let business write their own rules. And he felt that the Republican Party was getting too cozy to business to do what was right for the people. This flirting with quasi-socialist ideas on Roosevelt's part led people like future President Warren Harding, who became president in 1920, who obviously was not a big fan of nuance. He led Harding to call Roosevelt a communist. Similarly today, some people on the extreme right wing of politics in the US consider Roosevelt a full-blown socialist. There are clearly some parts of it. You know, his uh, unapologetic imperialism did not fit with socialist ideas at all. Uh, several parts of his platform did not. But clearly his idea of the role of government and social programs did. Now, back to the election of 1912, if Democrats had nominated one of the more conservative members of their party, Roosevelt had a, would have had a really good chance of winning as an independent. Problem was that they nominated Woodrow Wilson, who was uh, progressive enough that he could steal some of the progressive votes from Roosevelt. Both Roosevelt and Wilson wanted strong federal government and were somewhat progressives. Taft was more conservative than both of them. And, uh, and again, I keep using these words because that's all we have. I just said we shouldn't use words like conservative or liberal, and here I am using it because, unfortunately, 
the political dictionary doesn't really leave us with too many opportunities. So take it with a grain of salt. But Taft was, Taft believed that business should be free from government interference. Roosevelt knew he was probably in a losing fight. Any sensible politicians would have probably given up by now, because deep down Roosevelt must have known that he was somewhat hopeless with going against Taft and Wilson at the same time, never mind Eugene Debs. But Roosevelt was not like any other politician, and for that matter he wasn't like too many other individuals, period. Finding himself staring at a hopeless fight did not intimidate him. He wanted to go out and fight anyway, because that's who he was. That was Theodore Roosevelt. And he still managed to get huge crowds to come out for him. In Los Angeles, in one occasion, 200,000 people came out to hear him speak. Since we mentioned hear him speak, something happened during one of his speeches. In Milwaukee, on October 14, he, he was riding in this car, waving at the crowd on his way to give a speech. When, as the car was going slowly, Roosevelt was waving at everybody, a guy walked up and shot Roosevelt in the chest from just five feet away. It was a German immigrant by the name of John Schrank. He had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. He was convinced that the ghost of former President McKinley had told him to shoot Roosevelt. He was also mad about Roosevelt seeking a third term. So he walked up and shot Roosevelt from just a few feet away. The bullet hit Roosevelt in the chest, breaking a rib. However, before penetrating his body, the bullet had to go through the glass case that Roosevelt had in his pocket. And the 50 pages of notes that he also had in his pockets where he had written his whole speech. And yet the bullet did go through this got inside Roosevelt's body, and lodged itself less than a fourth of an inch from his heart. Quickly, people in the crowd just jumped on the shooter, they captured him. Roosevelt told them, don't hurt him, bring him here, I want to see him. And then he asked, what did you do it for? And when the shooter didn't reply, Roosevelt was like, what's the use, just turn him over to the police. A doctor was there at the scene, obviously told what any good doctor would say in a case like this, which is he turned to the driver and said, quickly drive to the hospital, take him there. But Roosevelt had other ideas. He brought his hand close to his mouth, he coughed in it, took a look, didn't see any blood, which told him that the lungs had not been pierced. So he turned to his driver and told him, you get me to that speech. So there he was, bleeding left and right, but walking into the hallway where he had promised he would give this speech. And he began his speech with the following sentence. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I've been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. So he unbuttoned his jacket, showed everybody blood 
that it stained his shirt and then decided no big deal i can go through this anyway he told them fortunately i had my manuscript so you see i was going to make a long speech and there is a bullet there is where the bullet went through and it probably saved me from going into my heart the bullet is in me now so i cannot make a very long speech but i will try my best so this crazy man, rather than doing the sensible thing and going to the hospital, decided it's a great idea to just walk in, deliver the speech as if nothing had happened, bullet in his body or no, and he actually kept talking for 90 minutes until he finally agreed to stop by at the hospital. Even his enemies were blown away by his toughness. I mean, say what you will about Roosevelt. Yes, somebody may be disgusted with some of his... Uh, more racist statements. Yes, somebody may be turned off by his brand of paternalistic imperialism. Yes, somebody may hate him for how loose he played with the Constitution, or maybe people who didn't like the Roosevelt's approach to using the government's role in regulating the economy. All these are you know, fair points, sure. People may not like him for a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe there are even a thousand other reasons why you don't like him. But regardless of all that, it's hard not to admire the man's toughness, because that sure was second to none. Later on, x-rays showed that the bullet was in the muscle, but the doctors thought it was more dangerous to try to extract it than leaving it there. So Roosevelt ended up keeping the bullet in his chest for the rest of his life. And yet this is not to say that this incident did not have an effect on Roosevelt, because the presence of the bullet in his chest made it nearly impossible for him to exercise. And exercise, physical exercise, had always been essential for Roosevelt's physical and mental sanity. Uh, it would be torture to go through the rest of his life without being able to exercise the way he had been used to. During a speech he later delivered in New York, Roosevelt stated his commitment that he was, I quote, pledged to fight while life lasts, the great fight for righteousness, for brotherhood, and for the welfare of mankind. Now, despite the larger-than-life quality of the 1912 bid for the presidency on Roosevelt's part, the outcome would be kind of tricky. On one hand, Roosevelt had tremendous success. He ended up beating the Republican Party candidate Howard Taft. But in the process, he ended up indirectly helping the Democratic Party. You know, he had tried to do something huge in American history. He had tried to mount a serious challenge to the two-party system, attempting to break their bilateral monopoly. And in the process, he ended up beating one of them in the election. But it wasn't quite enough. Roosevelt took 27% of the vote, which was the highest by any third-party candidate. Taft took 23 so Roosevelt had beat Taft, but Wilson beat them both with an easy 42%. And as I mentioned earlier, the socialist Eugene Debs took 6%. So defeat it was. Glorious defeat, perhaps, ambitious defeat, defeat in under impossible odds, but defeat nonetheless. 
Afterwards, the African-American educator Booker T. Washington visited him and explained his reasons why he had not been able to campaign for him. And Roosevelt told him, I understand, I get it, which is something that left Booker T. Washington very impressed, that he could be so um, clear-minded about it and not vengeful. And yet, Roosevelt was heavily depressed after the election. The Democrats clearly had no love for him. The Republican Party had become the party of his enemies. This was still kind of the high point, was still a high point for Roosevelt. After this time, things were going to go downhill from here. Back when he had stepped down from the presidency in 1908, Roosevelt had felt the need to go travel to Africa for close to a year. After this election, he decided to join in a similar adventure in the Amazon, uh, in late 1913, going into 1914. In some way, this was the standard approach for dealing with depression. Just jump into some daring adventure and action and forget about it all. As part of this MO, he had clearly done some questionable things, you know, as a uh, when his wife had died, he had left his infant daughter to go west. He had uh, also left his second wife when she was extremely sick in order to go fight in the Spanish-American War. And probably there were many other cases where his decisions were certainly impulsive and somewhat problematic. In some way, this is not just him. You know, Many people in his family were heavily depressed. And this pushing things to the limit this time would not turn out so well for Roosevelt, as it had not always worked the best for those close to him. In some way it makes me think of, um, there's a movie that they did about Bruce Lee's life uh, called Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. And uh, I was talking about it once with uh, Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon, who incidentally is an extremely sweet woman. And we are talking about it because the screenwriters of uh, Dragon the Bruce Lee story had decided to run a somewhat fictional storyline, uh, weave it inside Bruce Lee in true biography. And it basically went something like this, that there was, they imagined this presence of a demon stalking Bruce Lee throughout his life. And of course, you know, if you take it literally, no, there was no demon stalking Bruce Lee. But metaphorically speaking... I thought the idea was actually an interesting one because it showed that unless you defeat your demons, you are going to end up passing them on to your kids. Roosevelt and his brother Elliot had inherited their mom's demons, the ones she had struggled with. Elliot had paid the highest price by becoming an alcoholic and eventually killing himself. Theodore has spent most of his life running from his demons, and he did amazing things in spite of them, and yet he never fully defeated them, to the point that his own kids clearly inherited them. His son, Ted, would spend the rest of his life always unhappy with himself, despite achieving tremendous success, it seemed like he could not find enough success to be happy with himself. His other son, Kermit, hated high school, started drinking, smoking, doing opium, 
you know, his mom Edith had told him, you are too much father-son to find any attraction in immoral impurity. And yet, turns out she was wrong. Um, Kermit quickly became an alcoholic, struggled with depression his whole life, and eventually killed himself later on. Another one of their kids, Archie, ended up mildly insane. Alice? Well, we spoke plenty of Alice last time and her issues. And this time, in this particular occasion, the usual strategy of running away was not destined to work well for Theodore Roosevelt either. He went to the Amazon to chart the course of a newly discovered river. Um, the expedition would be made of little more than 20 people. There was a naturalist sent by the American Museum of Natural History, a doctor, some native porters. In explaining his decision, Roosevelt, <laughs> Roosevelt gave a justification for why he would do this daring adventure in classic Roosevelt fashion. He stated, I had to go. It was my last chance to be a boy. Which is clearly endearing. If Again, that doesn't take away from the craziness of it all, but it's clearly endearing. His son Kermit, who by now was already pretty heavily depressed, went with him. Kermit was 24 at this time. Edith was quite upset about them going off to Brazil. Brazil in 1913-1914 was not exactly an easy place, particularly the Amazon. You know, there were still hostile native tribes, uh, wild animals, diseases. You know, the conditions were insanely tough. This was no pleasure cruise. This was adventure in the scariest sense of the words. Turns out also that the expedition was poorly planned, and they quickly ran out of food. Uh, on one occasion, one guy who was part of the expedition stole some food and shot another member of the expedition and then fled uh, into the jungle. Nobody saw him again. In another instance, one of the native porters was in a canoe with Kermit when they had an accident and the native porter drowned. Some people from the local Indians, the local native tribes, were stalking the expedition and they let them know that they were watching them in a couple of occasions, killing some of their dogs. And yet the worst for Roosevelt was the day in which a couple of their canoes were about to get smashed by the current against the rocks. So in order to save the canoes, Roosevelt jumped into the river, but in the process he cut his leg on a rock. Now, the Amazon was not a good place to have an open cut in. So not surprisingly, the next day, Roosevelt started developing symptoms of malaria and high fever. He nearly died from it. The fever went up to 104. Roosevelt went straight up delirious. He kept asking everybody to be left behind, since he was holding the expedition back, but his son Kermit wouldn't let him. Roosevelt thought he wanted to swallow this vial of morphine he had brought with him in order to kill himself. But the only reason why he didn't is because he figured, if I'm dead, then Kermit is still going to try to take my body out of the jungle, but if I'm not moving not even a little bit, that's going to make his job even harder. So maybe I should try to stay alive, give him better odds of survival. 
they had to do surgery on him with no painkillers in the middle of the jungle, which I'm sure was not a particularly fun experience. Eventually they got out, and yes, the Brazilian government named the river after him, but this adventure was hell. You know, in, in the span of six weeks, Roosevelt had lost 55 pounds, was walking with a cane when he came back, and he seemed like he had aged decades in less than two months. Later in 1914, it became clear that World War I was about to break, eventually did, in Europe. Roosevelt would never run into a war he didn't like, would become one of the main proponents of American intervention in the war. And not surprisingly, he was upset that he wasn't president at a time like this of a great crisis. And he was even more upset that Wilson was president at the time, someone whom Roosevelt saw as weak and cold. He was mad with Wilson for not standing up stronger against Germany. And he accused him of running, I quote, a cult of cowardice. He was mad that people were not as infuriated with Wilson as he was. He was mad that, I quote from his words, the bulk of our people care for nothing but money-getting and motors and the movies, and dread nothing so much as risk to their soft bodies or interference with their easy lives. You can almost feel the disgust coming out of Roosevelt's words here. Uh, this was the opposite of the way his own philosophy of life. Conservatives in both parties hated him. The anti-war progressives didn't like him either, you know, because he was clearly too radical to be liked by conservatives, but was also too pro-war to be liked by progressives. Wilson, on one, in some way he was progressive, in other ways not at all. He was a radical opponent of the idea of women's right to vote. He was very clearly white supremacist, in a way that made Roosevelt's racial ideas seem super progressive by comparison, on both, well, actually, both about race and gender. Roosevelt by now was getting progressively more radical about these issues. In one instance, he went toe-to-toe -to -toe against a labor leader who had justified the killing in St. Louis of 39 black people during a race riot. And after the United States joined World War I, he gave a speech praising the efforts of black soldiers serving in the war, which was not a common thing to do for politicians back then. Now that the war was on, after it was becoming clear that the U.S. was about to join it in the latter phase of the war, Roosevelt was, let's remember his physical condition, he was blind in one eye, he had serious hearing loss, he suffered from gout, he had a bullet in his chest, and yet he wanted to raise a division of volunteers to go fight and lead them to fight in Europe. African Americans wanted to volunteer with him in record numbers. So Roosevelt went to meet Woodrow Wilson, asking him to let him do this. You know, he joked that he, he would promise not to come back if Wilson would let him fight in France. And in some way, maybe this was not a joke. 
Roosevelt wanted to die in the war. That was a good way for him to avoid old age and physical decline. Wilson commented on their meeting, saying, He's a great big boy. There's a sweetness about him that is very compelling. You can't resist the man. And yet, apparently, Wilson could resist the man and told him no. Quite a few people suggest that Wilson was afraid that if by any chance Roosevelt came back a war hero, he would be a terrifying opponent in the 1920 election, and Wilson did not want to take a chance with that. Roosevelt seemed to take it philosophically. He stated, I need not grumble about fate. I had my day, and it was a good day. But yet he never forgave Wilson and became one of his most vocal critics. When the Wilson administration passed some anti-free speech legislation such as the Sedition Act, Roosevelt condemned him in the harshest terms. He called it sheer treason to the United States. Roosevelt's running mate in the 1912 election, Senator Hiram Johnson, also had this to say about this. He said, We are at war against a ruthless enemy. But good God, Mr. President, when did it become a war upon the American people? Quite a few people saw Roosevelt as a paladin for free speech against the dictatorial Wilson. It's not entirely true, uh, because Roosevelt had made uh, quite a few speeches um, against anyone not supporting the war, suggesting that these were enemies, suggesting that teachers not taking loyalty oaths may be fired. He, you know, he had, he had stated stuff that was a bit totalitarian in nature, maybe not as totalitarian as what Wilson was uh, campaigning for, the kind of stuff that Wilson passed, but not that radically far either. He, he was not a free speech versus a dictator, was... Both were put in restriction of free, on free speech, just Wilson was doing a lot more than Roosevelt advocated. By now, Roosevelt and Taft made up. They became, of course, it would be a strained friendship, but it was, they were friends again. And despite his hatred of Wilson, Roosevelt went on a speaking tour to encourage the war effort and convince American people to support the war. At some point... Around this time, he was sued because um, he had stated that both the bosses of the Democratic and Republican parties were, they had identical corrupt goals. Uh, openly accusing both sides of corruption did not win him many friends in politics, so one of the Republican Party bosses sued him. Um, the trial was a big deal. Franklin Delano Roosevelt would step up to testify in favor of Theodore, and eventually uh, Roosevelt was absolved with a unanimous verdict. But nonetheless, again, is a reminder of the kind of controversy that he would often create. He kept struggling around this time with his how uh, his body, after the trip into South America, could no longer live up to his ideals anymore. By now, he was much older than his age. Um, despite his failing body and his advancing age, there was something sweet about him. He was still very in love with his wife. 
there are a couple of quotes from stuff he wrote around this time that well i'll just read them to you with no commentary speaking of his wife uh, he he wrote she looks so pretty and charming that now and then i have to get up and make love to her which is rather absurd on the part of a gouty old man and in another passage he stated that she was as charming and pretty as when she was the slender girl i made love to and i can't help making love to her now <laughs> so here we have theodore roosevelt as a romantic we haven't that's not exactly what we had pictured so far but i guess there was this side to roosevelt's life as well in 1916 he was too wiped out to run plus it was becoming clear that the progressive party couldn't quite break the two-party monopoly the Republican Party was still too mad at Roosevelt, so he would not be able to get their nomination. And he, in classic Roosevelt fashion, he said, it would be a mistake to nominate me, unless the country has in its mood something of the heroic. Even though he couldn't quite run, he still couldn't help himself by making this kind of way over the top epic statements the progressives wanted him to run they nominated him but he said that he wouldn't accept because there were just not enough votes there was no point running like that even though he didn't really like him he supported hughes which was the republican candidate in 1916 and despite not hughes losing to wilson in 1916 roosevelt's attacks against the wilson administration they help take votes away from wilson guys in the uh, in the 1918 in the 1918 congressional election quite a few people in the republican party began to have second thoughts about him and they thought that maybe they could have him as the nominee for 2020 there are actually good chances that had that happen he probably would have won the election and become president again. But something else at this time contributed to break Roosevelt's already decline in energy. He had pushed all of his four sons into surfing into World War I and used his political connections to make sure they were in the front lines. I quote from his words, he stated, I would have not have them elsewhere for anything in the world. All of his sons saw combat, they all won medals, two of them were wounded in the war. One of his sons, the youngest, Quentin, was a pilot in the war. On a particular day he won a dogfight with a German pilot. But on another fateful day, he ended up getting killed in action. This was going to be devastating to his father, Theodore Roosevelt. I quote from his words, To feel the one has inspired a boy to conduct that has resulted in his death as a pretty serious side for a father. And at the same side, I would have not have cared for my boys and they would have not cared for me if our relations 
had not been just along that line. That's something really heavy right there, to think about Roosevelt's whole life, talking about bravery and warfare and this and that, kind of putting war in a very positive light, and, and in his own experience had worked out that way. And yet, here we are with his youngest son dying in a war, which another quote on this by Roosevelt stated, it is rather awful to know that he paid with his life, and that my other sons may pay with their lives, to try to put in practice what I preached. He's hurting there, you know, he, there is something in him that makes him think, you know, these, I pushed them to this, and now one of them is dead. Then again, he went on to say, of course, I would not have it otherwise. But there's something there where it sounds like he's trying to convince himself that it was worth it. The reality is that it broke his heart. And the following year, in 1911, Theodore Roosevelt died in his sleep. He was only 60 years old. Upon finding out that their father had died, his son Archibald telegraphed his siblings, saying, The old lion is dead. At the funeral, his longtime rival and friend, William Taft, uh, remained by his grave crying long after everyone else had left. I was speaking once with author Ryan Holiday about Roosevelt. And Ryan, he made a good point. He said that Roosevelt probably pushed himself too hard and burned himself out. Willpower is certainly a beautiful quality, but there are limits to willpower. You know, Roosevelt died at 60 with a broken body when, at a time when he could have probably lived into his 80s, but you know, maybe he had pushed for a slightly less strenuous life, would have been better for him. Maybe a little more meditation and Tai Chi rather than going hardcore in, in everything he did with 110% intensity would have allowed him to last longer. But then again, maybe he wouldn't have been Theodore Roosevelt had it been like that. Thomas Marshall, a rival politician and Wilson's vice president, found the perfect words to pay homage to Roosevelt's fighting spirit. He stated, Death had to take him sleeping, for if Roosevelt had been awake, there would have been a fight. Theodore Roosevelt is a challenge. His whole life is a challenge to the typical dualistic way of looking at the world. People love to follow, despite what they claim, the reality is that people love to follow ideological dogmas. Which is why, typically, if you know someone's stance on abortion, you also know their stance on global warming, uh, even though the two issues have nothing to do with each other. People tend to buy into prepackaged ideologies and follow the playbook of whatever ideology they subscribe to in all of its aspects. Roosevelt is a whole different story. Theodore Roosevelt is dynamite, set in the house of binary thinking. He did not fit into neatly defined ideological categories. 
he was always two things at the same time. He was big on personal responsibility. And yet people who advocate progressive quasi-socialist policies usually are not huge proponents of personal responsibility. He managed to do both at the same time. And fans of personal responsibility tend to hate progressive politics. Unlike later members of the Roosevelt family, will fracture, with these kids being mostly on the pro-responsibility sides and less on the social on the kind of social policy that their father endorsed, whereas Franklin Delano Roosevelt being very big on the social stuff, on the social safety net, and less so on personal responsibility. Theodore Roosevelt was both at the same time. He was uh, in favor of taking responsibility for everything. He was big on the idea of becoming a quote-unquote self-made man. And at the same time, he supported the notion of a social safety net. He was rich, but he liked to rough it. He clearly was not spoiled by wealth. He was a passionate hunter, but he was a strong environmentalist long before this was popular. Some of his ideas about race were tilting in a more racist direction, and in other way, he wasn't racist at all. He was progressive and a warmonger at the same time. He supported socialist policies, and yet he was in favor of capitalism. He was a nerd with his head buried in books, and yet he was an athlete and action-oriented. And the list goes on. He lived completely outside normal categories of behavior. This is exactly what makes me like him. What this tells me, this mixing of seemingly opposite quality, tells me that he was coming from his heart and standing on his own. Right or wrong, he was never going by someone else's playbook. Perhaps he failed at times and did things we may disagree with. He certainly failed at times and did things that I, I personally don't agree with. But it's impossible not to admire the guts and the risks he was willing to take. In his own words, and this is... This quote I'm going to give you is in my mind one of the, well, it's one of the most famous Roosevelt quotes, and for good reasons, because it's one of the most powerful and amazing Roosevelt quotes. It goes like this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives violently, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, where the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat.
it is safe to say that Theodore Roosevelt walked this talk and did, indeed, dare greatly. If you're interested in uh, what may be some of the upcoming topics for future episodes, you can always check up on my public Facebook page. I'll put a link at historyonfirepodcast.com, where I often post things that are uh, related to History on Fire. I'm actually quite excited about some of the topics that we'll be playing with in 2017, and I usually discuss them or give some hints regarding them on the public Facebook page uh, well ahead of time. So in case you're interested, that's the place where to check it out. I want to give a big thank you to the Audible original series Presidents Are People Too for supporting History on Fire. It seems very fitting to have them sponsor this particular episode since this is the last of the three-part series on the life of Theodore Roosevelt. The concept behind the whole series, which by the way is hosted by former Daily Show head writer Elliot Callan and American historian Alexis Coe, the concept is exploring the lives of uh, some of the most important American presidents, not in the classic way that you do in high school, just with your standard political biography, but also really digging into their human side which in many ways is what I've been doing in my own style in this Roosevelt series. I'm sure they, you know, they do it with their own style, with a different flair, probably exploring even different specific issues. But the goal is the same, is to try to make some of these characters come to life in a more real 360-degree fashion rather than in your standard political biography type of way. In the course of their series, you will hear illuminating stories that show them to be more like you and me than the towering figures we so often hear about. And uh, the whole thing regarding presidents are people too, in many ways it's a fun alternative to conversation about current events that seem to be dominating the news. Find out how to listen right now at audible.com forward slash presidents. Again, that's audible.com forward slash presidents. Also, please give a big thank you to my other sponsor, uh, Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit has a whole range of amazing supplements, special foods, clothing, exercise equipment, so if you check them out at onnit.com forward slash history, uh, where you'll receive an automatic 10% discount, 
I'm pretty sure that you're going to find something to your liking. Just right now, for example, right before beginning to record today, I was snacking on some of their buffalo bars, which are quite tasty and amazing. They are one of my favorite snacks. Also, thank you to Datsusara. You can find them at www.dsgear.com, where you can use the code Daniele for a discount on the whole range of computer bags, backpacks, and other hemp-made gear that they carry. Um, because I'm trying not to chase, you know, spend all my time chasing sponsors and burying you guys in ads, there have been quite a few guys who have been donating, and I really appreciate it. There's a at historyonfirepodcast.com forward slash donate. Your PayPal donations are deeply, deeply appreciated. A huge thank you to all of you. Also, an easy way to support the show is by using the Amazon link at historyonfirepodcast.com. All you have to do is bookmark it once and then use it anytime you use Amazon. And it's an easy way for you not to spend an extra cent and still be supporting the show. Of course... As I mentioned in the past, in the episode notes, you'll also find links to my lecture series about Taoism. It's about seven hours divided in 16 different chapters of audio material on the philosophy of Taoism. Uh, Also, there's my most recent book, Not Afraid, is up there um, in audio format that can be downloaded and bought that way. What else do I want to tell you? Of course, a big thank you to everybody who has sponsored my lady and daughter of the History on Fire logo, Savannah M, for her upcoming MMA fight. Uh, actually, it may not be upcoming because by the time this is released, it's probably one week into the past. But big thanks to all of them, particularly one of the latest sponsors to add themselves to the list has been Fight Chicks. It's spelled Fight C H I X. Fightchicks is an apparel company. They have t-shirts, hoodies, and all sorts of other goodies, all related to women in combat sports. So if that's something that may interest you, there's a discount code for History on Fire listeners. It's FIRE and then the number 2-0. So FIRE20. Having said all this, I think I'm going to now shut up and wish you guys a wonderful day. <laughs>